Welcome to the Fastest Five Minutes, presented by Kroll and Mooring. We are your co-hosts for this edition, Peter Ayer and Yuan Zhou, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts, legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. And we're going to start this edition with a brief discussion of the Department of Treasury rule that governs eligible uses of the $350 billion in coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds under the American Rescue Plan, sometimes referred to as ARPA. Under that rule, state, local, and tribal governments may fund a broad range of water and sewer projects, modernization of cybersecurity, and high-speed broadband infrastructure projects. Recipients are required to comply with Treasury's compliance and reporting guidance, which was issued on November 15 of 2021, which among other things requires recipients to submit mandatory periodic reports to Treasury, and it contains a wide variety of obligations that flow to subrecipients. In other words, when we think about strings that are attached to ARPA funds, this is really the rule that talks about um, what those are, how to think about them, and what the reporting obligations look like. So certainly an area of focus, that final rule will take effect on April 1st of this year. Now I'm gonna turn it to Yuan to talk about a bid protest decision involving corporate transactions. Thanks, Peter. Earlier this month, GAO publicly released a decision that sustained a protest filed by Vertex Aerospace, which challenged an Air Force task order award due to the agency's failure to meaningfully consider the impact of the awardee's acquisition by another company during the pendency of the procurement. Here are the facts. In late 2020, DynCorp International was awarded an IDIQ contract. Shortly thereafter, Amentum acquired the outstanding shares of DynCorp's former parent holding company, resulting in DynCorp becoming Amentum's wholly owned subsidiary. In December 2020, DynCorp submitted a proposal in response to a task order solicitation under the IDIQ contract. While its proposal was pending, DynCorp submitted documentation to DCMA requesting novation of its IDIQ contract to Amentum. DCMA, in turn, provided a copy of the novation agreement to the Air Force during its evaluation of DynCorp's proposal. Nonetheless, the Air Force completed that evaluation without considering the level of impact, if any, the momentum acquisition would have on DynCorp's ability to perform. After the Air Force awarded the task order to DynCorp, Vertex protested, alleging that, among other things, the Air Force's failure to consider that specific question was an error. In sustaining the protest, GAO noted that DynCorp's proposal made no mention of its recent acquisition, nor did the agency's evaluation record or source selection documentation make any reference to the acquisition or its potential effect on DynCorp's performance. GAO also rejected the Air Force's post-protest explanation that the acquisition would have no impact on DynCorp's performance, noting the lack of detail in the contemporaneous record explaining how the integration and consolidation of contract performance activities between the two companies would be accomplished to ensure that the resources and employees needed for the contract would be available. As a result, GAO held that the record was insufficient to support a conclusion that the agency meaningfully and reasonably considered the effect of the corporate transaction on the awardee's ability to perform. GAO further stressed that decisions regarding matters of corporate 
corporate status and restructuring are highly fact-specific and turn largely on the individual circumstances of the proposed transactions and timing. So this is an important decision for companies to review when involved in corporate transactions. Peter, back to you. Great. Thanks so much, Yuan. We're going to briefly touch on two interesting decisions. I'll talk about the first, which comes from the Court of Federal Claims, and Yuan is going to talk about the second, which comes from the ASBCA. So first to the Court of Federal Claims matter, which in which the court dismissed a post-award protest filed by CACI for lack of standing because CACI failed to put forth any evidence to rebut allegations of an organizational conflict of interest, which rendered CACI ineligible for award. In that case, the awardee and the government each filed a motion to dismiss, contending that CACI was not eligible for award because it had an unmitigated biased ground rules OCI based on prior task orders that it had performed for the Army. Ultimately, the court found that CACI had not met its burden to establish standing as it did not provide evidence to show that it did not have an OCI. As such, the court dismissed CACI's protest. It's an interesting decision about the confluence of OCIs and bid protest standing. So uh, certainly something uh, to be on the lookout for as, uh, as we talk about standing and OCIs in the protest context. Now over to Yuan uh, for a ASBCA decision. Thanks, Peter. Finally, we're sharing a headline from an ASBCA decision in Cellular Material International's appeal of a government claim arising from the difference between CMI's billing rates and the final rates established by the contracting officer. Now, CMI had submitted a final indirect cost rate proposal, which claimed costs for consultant fees. Notably, the consultant whose fees CMI claimed was also the chair of CMI's board of directors, as well as CMI's largest shareholder, owning nearly 39% of CMI shares. The CEO issued a final decision disallowing the claimed consultant costs because CMI lacked sufficient evidence of the nature and scope of the service furnished such that incurrence, allowability, and allocability of those costs can be determined and unilaterally established CMI's final indirect cost rates. Now on appeal, CMI produced promissory notes as evidence to support the allowability of the consultant cost, in which CMI promised to pay the consultant five days after demand. But although nine years had passed, the consultant never demanded payment on the notes and CMI never paid. Now, CMI's contracts incorporated FAR 52216-7, allowable cost and payment, which requires contractors to submit a final indirect cost rate proposal based on the contractor's actual cost experience for that period. The board noted that actual costs pursuant to FAR Part 31 are defined as amounts determined on the basis of costs incurred as distinguished from forecasted costs but that the FAR provides no further guidance on the issue of whether a cost has been incurred. The board turned to federal circuit decisions in other contexts to hold that for a cost to be incurred for purposes of the allowable cost and payment clause, the contractor must have a legal obligation to pay, an implicit rejection of the government's argument that a cost must be actually paid. Now, in this case, it was undisputed that although CMI had executed promissory notes for the purported debt, the consultant had not demanded payment since the notes were executed nine years ago. 
according to the board, CMI had no legal obligation to pay, and therefore the consultant costs had not yet been incurred and could not be claimed as allowable. Citing Federal Circuit precedent, the board noted that even if one were to assume that there is a near certain future prospect of a demand for payment, that future expense must be more than merely likely or probable to be an incurred cost. Peter? Perfect. And we will close it out for this edition. This has been the Fastest Five Minutes brought to you by Kroll and Mooring. See you again in two weeks. If you have any questions about these items, I can be reached at 202 624 2807 and Yuan can be reached at 202-624-2666. Thanks so much for joining. The Fastest 5 Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mori LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast.